Hello, this is your host, Sunita Bagri. I am the founder of the Every Teacher Matters Project. Welcome to the Every Teacher Matters Network podcast. Each podcast has a core focus around the well-being of our teachers, school leaders and educational staff. The Teach Well Alliance works proudly in partnership with the Every Teacher Matters Network to raise awareness of well-being and mental health for our teachers and school staff. We're so pleased that you're able to join us on today's podcast. Hello and welcome to today's podcast. I am delighted to be sitting here today with our guest that is going to join us, who I've had the pleasure of knowing for a very long time, but have not, have actually just reconnected with very recently. And hopefully we are both as excited with this reconnection because of the experience that we've gained over time and the projects that we're working on now. So it's absolutely my pleasure to introduce Avinda Singh Paul to today's show. Now, just before I bring him on, I just want to talk to you about the amazing work that he is doing in terms of having founded Rainbow Schools Charity. So Rainbow Schools Charity supports all vulnerable children, namely the disabled and orphaned in London and in India. Their focus is to provide an inclusive learning environment so that all children can aim high and achieve their full potential. Our fully inclusive and, well, their fully inclusive and integrated school will provide individualised learning where each child has their own specially tailored learning programme supported by caring professionals and excellent modern resources. The school will incorporate innovative modern research-based therapies, a holistic approach, it will be eco-friendly with an on-site organic farm, fruit trees and open for all. The Rainbow Schools will promote and work to protect vulnerable children with a specific focus on the disabled and orphaned so that they come to no harm. They will promote and advocate for the full participation of vulnerable children in their communities so that those children become a part of their local society. How wonderful, how heartwarming and how humbling to be connected with you so that we can talk about this project today, Arvinda. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Sunita. It's wonderful to finally see you and connect with you after nearly 20 years. And uh, amazing how the world is such a small place and how we came to connect from LinkedIn after you moved to the Midlands from London. So it's wonderful to be speaking with you today. And thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you, Arvinda. Honestly, the pleasure is all mine. So um, I came across your one of your posts on LinkedIn about rainbow schools and I recognised your, your profile and thought, I remember this chap. This chap <laughs> was the one who interviewed me in my post-NQT year as I moved from one school and back into to London where I felt really comfortable working. So um, that's how we're connected. I didn't have the pleasure of working with you for very long, but I, I can remember the legacy you left uh, as I as I was immersed into that school at that time. So I know that you bring a lot of experience and expertise to the teaching profession. So I was personally delighted to read your post and see the work that you're doing. And even though you've retired, it hasn't stopped, has it, Avinda? Uh, retired is a, a relative term, isn't it? Retired from what? <laughs> <laughs> That's very true. 
Retired from full-time teaching. Yes, that's definitely uh, retired from that. But uh, teaching's really been my passion and uh, my vocation, I think. That's uh, what I was put on this earth to do, I suppose. Um, I, it didn't come straight away after going to university. It came quite late after I had my own children and I became a governor of their primary school. Mm. And I got involved with that teaching and learning. Mm. And uh, I thought, hang on a minute. Uh, what I'm doing now is not really fulfilling. So I took out a year to do a PGCE, which was the hardest year of my life. Yes. Probably the hardest year of my wife's life. We just had a, a six-month-old baby, yeah. an 18-month-old special needs daughter, yeah. a seven-year-old and a nine-year-old. Yeah. And, um, and moved house yes. and had to do the whole house up again from scratch. Yes. So it was a very stressful time, but it... It's been a wonderful, wonderful last 20, 29, 30 years, I suppose now, that uh, I've been in teaching. Uh, it's been a wonderful experience in teaching inclusives in, in, in inclusive schools, uh, which is where my, my uh, expertise was and where my experience lay. Um, and having a special needs daughter just made that a little bit more special, um, teaching special needs children and coming from a point of view of a parent as well as a teacher yeah. just gave me a, a unique outlook uh, on, uh, on teaching and learning for special needs. Um, after I, the reason why I left teaching, which was what now 12 years ago, full-time teaching after I was an assistant head at uh, a, a local school, um, my daughter, the special needs daughter developed uh, kidney failure oh, and uh, one of my kidneys was, a, well, my kidney was a match. Uh, both my wife and I got tested, but mine became a match. So I couldn't, being in uh, senior leadership, couldn't really justify me taking time off uh, and being um, not useful in the school and taking money out of the budget for them not getting value back. So I, I resigned and uh, the kidney worked really well. My daughter, Gurleen, who is special needs, still has the kidney now now. 2006 in fact it was 4th of July you know Independence Day for America it was Independence Day from dialysis for us oh, yes. <laughs> so yes. that's a very memorable date yes. um, so after that I went back to University of East London where I trained uh, on to begin be a teacher on a PGC course and started training other teachers on their PGC courses um, as, as a tutor as a professional tutor as a visiting tutor I suppose you, some some universities like to call them um, so I have experience of uh, training teachers, uh, the art of uh, primary school teaching, which yeah. was really rewarding. Um, it was a wonderful experience. And it brought me back to what you're doing now about being wellness in teaching and that every teacher matters is, is a wonderful project. So it's wonderful to see that you're leading that uh, with other people and uh, you're making an impact on the work-life balance, I suppose, of teachers and, uh, and head teachers. Yeah. But back in those days, this is now over 10 years ago. Um, in fact, in my teaching uh, experience, uh, this is nearly 30 years ago now, I started, uh, what I started to call then was meditation. Oh, um, I recognized that after playtime, in the afternoons after lunch you know when they're high on their sugars and they're running the kids are running around they come back so hyper and i just wanted to find strategies of calming them down 
So what I used to do is uh, I, I trained them that they had to line up outside the classroom in silence. And they came into the classroom in silence to some um, calming music being played in the background. Mm -hmm. And they would come and sit in their chairs with their feet firmly on the ground with their backs in the backs of the backrest of the chair and their palms of their hands on their knees mm -hmm. or uh, clasped together whatever they felt comfortable mm -hmm. and they would close their eyes and that would happen for about two or three minutes um, i started to do uh stories while their eyes were closed so really to impact on the project that we might be doing at that time yeah. so linking it to like the tudors or the egyptians or whatever project that was going on um and you know making these stories up as they came in and ask them to visualize where they were and what they were experiencing i remember one very vivid um, afternoon where one child afterwards said sir i could taste the ice cream because it was a it was a really hot summer's day and i took them on a on a on a beach where they were walking on the beach with their uh, bare feet and they could feel the cold uh, sand under their feet and uh, they their parents bought them an ice cream and they could choose the color they could see the texture they could see the color of it and they could feel the coldness on their tongue on all that visualization just at the end of those two or three minutes um you know, half of them were salivating because they, they actually had that experience <laughs> of eating the ice cream. Uh, and, and some of them said they've still had that taste in the mouth when the, when the meditation was complete. How powerful. But, uh, it, was, it was a powerful, powerful way of not just calming them down, mm -hmm. but for their creative writing as well. Yeah. And uh, um, it led me to start doing that, just closing my eyes in the staff room and just sitting quietly mm -hmm. without talking to anybody. And people started to ask me, what are you doing? <laughs> mm. So 30 years ago, I could see that, you know, teachers were very, very stressed, overworked, especially when the uh, curriculum keeps changing every few years. I started my career when there was no national curriculum. And then it came into like 15 binders <laughs> that came with one every subject. It then condensed into, into one document, which then got, uh, changed over the years again and again and the teaching standards kept changing mm -hmm. so lots of things for heads and teachers to get their head around uh, with the changes which were coming from top down yeah um, so I, I felt that uh, relaxation is what I started to call it because one religious group didn't want meditation done on their children <laughs> so I had to change the term just to be politically correct I suppose but it was just being mindful. Now it's called mindfulness. It you know, the terms change, but the technique and the the uh, the methods are very similar. Yes. Yeah. So teachers definitely need to one realize that they're they're stressed, mm. and two they need to have strategies and and a toolkit similar to what you're doing now. In fact, in there, yeah, um, for coping with all of that stress that they are facing. That's right. Um, right. Um, some of the things that I did then are definitely in your toolkit, which I've already uh, seen, which is wonderful to see. Um, just taking time out, you know, having enough water on the table, having a bottle of water on, on the table of the teacher's Absolutely. desk. Um, and, and having those few snippets of moments or even 30 seconds or a minute just to take in a deeper breath mm. and just to sit down and calm yourself and say, right, I'm in charge here. I'm not letting the stress 
be in charge. I'm in charge of my stress. Yeah, and that realization then starts to implement, you know, start thinking of other strategies to, to manage that stress level. Definitely. Um, you said something really important, really, because I always champion this phrase that there is no, there is no pupil well-being unless there is teacher well-being. And I think yeah. it just shows that actually in the experience that you shared about your own reflection time, relaxation, just taking a few minutes, but then using that in the classroom, you wouldn't have, you know, you wouldn't have been as powerful, I guess, in that sense, if you didn't recognize that you needed that too. And I think that's a lot of the feedback that we're getting from teachers that we're working with, is that there's a sense of, you know, a sense of uh, disappointment, really, is the best term, that they are being expected to look after the well-being of their pupils. But actually, what about them? Um, and I think what you what you described there was was really important and a really important message to keep reinforcing to our teachers. I think that's really true. And I think head teachers and senior leadership get into the whole business of running the school and get into the nitty gritty of doing, doing, doing all the time. Mm. And they just need to step back and then have these uh, wonderful whole staff meeting gatherings. And it's just the way you start a staff meeting can actually make an impact on not just the well-being of the teachers, but the engagement levels as well. Definitely. Um, the last thing any teacher wants at the end of a, a hard day school at 3.30 is to go into the staff room and sit and being lectured at for an hour and a half on something that wasn't relevant to them. <laughs> Correct. Or, or very little relevance to them. Yes. Um, yes. So really for, for senior leadership to recognise, first of all, I learned this through an accelerated workshop, the uh, training that we had uh, at school. And, and the, the very first thing was to be ready to learn. Now, it really doesn't matter. All the, all the skills that all our teachers already have and they already know, mm. they need to implement them and start them on themselves yes. and on their colleagues. Yes. <laughs> and that, you know, you don't have to go out looking for them. All you teachers out there, you are totally skilled enough, you know enough on how to teach your kids in the classroom, but you just have to bring that back to your own uh, self and you've got to bring it back to the staff room as well. So one of the first things in accelerated learning was having, making sure that the learner is ready to learn. Mm. How do you make a learner ready to learn? Yes, yeah. <laughs> You know, there's Condition many different techniques you can have, um, but relaxation is, is one of those wonderful ones, which really brings people down mm. from their, thoughts going in all sorts of tangents and all sorts of directions into what's important in the moment yes, yes. and then the engagement level obviously starts from that yeah it's um, creating the right conditions for learning it is. Isn't it? It yeah, is. yeah and, right and within yourself conditions for teaching absolutely so i don't think there's a teacher out there that uh, hasn't experienced this that you're feeling really bad Mm. and you're not really there other things might be on your mind and you go in really grumpy and and you know taking it out on the shouting maybe and taking it out on the kids mm. and you think that was a really bad day yeah. and you know 100 percent of the time when i've reflected on on those days it's all been about me yeah it's not the kids mm. the yeah. kids i rubbed off onto the kids my unwell-being <laughs> rubbed off on the kids yeah. Yeah, yeah, and, and they pick up on that. But if they pick up on 
my well-being that also rubs off on the kids so true that is so profound and so yeah. true let's come back to well-being Let, yeah. let's talk about your project because it is it, you know i i I'm so excited for you know what you've created, what you've developed, and I know this is a love um, and inspired by your own daughter, um, and obviously some of the the humble characteristics that are coming through of you in this conversation that are so clear. I know the listeners will be picking up on. So tell us about Rainbow Schools and your project. Um, after Gurleen had the renal failure, I retired from teaching, as I said, and I and I thought, okay, what's my purpose? Um, the three months before I turned 50, Sunita, is a, is a time that I want to share with you. Yeah. Just the three months before I turned the age of 50, I was in like semi-depression. I thought, you're going to be 50 soon. What have you done with your life? And what do you want to do? And these questions really gnawed at me um, day in, day out. And it was just basically, statistically, if you've got another 20 years or 25 years left to live, what do you want to do with that time? You know, I'm going to be turning 50. Maybe I'll live, you know, you don't know whether you're going to be around tomorrow, but let's just statistically say that I was going to be around for another 20, 25 years. Mm. What do I want to do with that time? And thinking like that, when you put it on the table, that this is your finite time. Yes. What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do with it? Yes. What I could have done, I could have easily spent my time on holidays, playing golf, you know, just normal things that everybody does when they're retired. But there was something else that was saying, you know, you've got this special needs daughter and you've got these skills of teaching special needs children in an inclusive environment. Why don't you use those? Mm. And it was my father-in-law who, who lives in, who lived in Delhi now. Mm. He said that a doctor friend of his has a special needs child and there's no school that he can find in the whole of Delhi which wow. is like three times the size of London in terms of population and size that he would be happy with. And that just got me thinking, I think, hang on, if, if a doctor who's educated can't find something that's suitable for his child, there must be thousands, thousands of others that are in the same boat. So my wife and I with Gurleen started to go to India for one month every year and look at all the uh, special needs schools, uh, hostels, orphanages, anything that we could find, we would go and visit them. And consistently we found that, that they lacked uh, not just resources, which they would always complain about, you know, they lacked this resource, that lacked that resource, but they, the fundamental thing was they lacked training. Mm. They didn't know how to deal with ASD, the autistic spectrum. They didn't know how to deal with a cerebral palsy a child or a Down syndrome or any of the other conditions or any sensory um, uh, integration uh, difficulties that the child might, might have. So we started to train the teachers there in those schools and those centers. And that was really well appreciated. But everywhere we went, we must have gone to over 20 different centers in Northern India, going from uh, Jaipur, we, if we went on holiday in Jaipur, I went. I made sure that I visited a special school there <laughs> and we trained the teachers there. Yeah. We went to uh, Northern India in Delhi. We, we trained uh, three or four schools there. Then in Punjab as well, in Chandigarh, Patiala, uh, Ludhiana, Amritsar. And everywhere, it was just lack of knowledge on how to, uh, the structure of the whole school 
was just about uh, looking after them in terms of their clothing, the roof over their head and food. There's nothing about cognitive development. Now, one of the oldest establishments in the Northern India is called Pingalwada. It's, a, it's been uh, set up over 50 years ago by what what's, uh, a term is now who's called a saint, Saint, uh, saint Puran Singh. And he looked after a special needs boy on his back for many years before he established uh, the Pingalwada Foundation. I went to their foundation uh, over 12 years ago. It was the first foundation I went to. And I asked the manager, I said, tell me what you need here that is not about money. And he couldn't tell me. Ooh. And after having visited that area, there were, there were teenage girls in beds who I suspect were cerebral palsy um, uh, afflicted and they couldn't move their bodies. And I asked him a simple question. I said, what do you do when that girl who's now 14, 15, you know, she's uh, past puberty, in mostly past puberty she's menstruating every month what do you do if she wants to go to the toilet and he asked the ladies there and the lady said there's two ladies amongst about 15 girls that they're looking after um and they said that what well, she does it in in her in her clothing she does it on the bed i said if it took even a month or six months or a year or two years to train or to help that child that girl just wink or move some part of her body or communicate in any way that was possible for her that she wants to go to the toilet that would be so empowering for her and look at the amount of time that would save the carers now the carers would have to take that girl pick her up take her to the bathroom change her clothing wash her reclothe her yeah. wash her clothes change bedding wash bedding, clean bedding, all of that would probably take about three hours to do when it's something that could have been done in 10, 15 minutes. Yes, yes. And the mindset just wasn't there. It was unbelievable that these people have been looking after, uh, you know, these, these children and these, these adults now for over 50 years. And the head, uh, I talked to her as well. I said, you know, we don't want to... Uh, step on any toes we just want to do several several you know selfless service we just want to volunteer our services there and um, they just said no we're, we're happy with the way we are and because i'd i'd met uh, santapuran singh after i graduated in 1982 81 i went to india in 81 i'd seen him and i met him and he took me by the hand and he showed me the whole of his complex there was a connection that i had and i thought that was the first place i wanted to go and do uh, have voluntary service there. And, you know, we went to other places as well. And everywhere we went, it was just a lack of, not just knowledge, but lack of the commitment yeah. to, to make these children uh, stand on their own two feet if possible, or become as independently as possible. The only three things they were worried about was they're giving the roof over their heads, they were clothing them and they were feeding them. Yeah. So I mean, what I'm yeah, there's more to a human being than that yeah it's just low expectations having low expectations of the children which is heartbreaking yeah. it is it is and uh, the more we looked into it the more we found that not one center there was uh, having a holistic approach not one center was doing any inclusive education at all and inclusive education has now been well established 
in, in, in around the world um, as the model that every child, irrespective of their ability or disability, has a right to be educated in their community school. They are part of the community and they are part of that school. And the school is a part of the community. But if you segregate these children into special schools, into um, you know, institutions, for want of a better word, and to be um, out of sight, out of mind from the rest of the public, then the public are missing an opportunity of what these children and what these adults have come to this earth for. Yes. Now, Gurleen has been my teacher. She's been uh, inspirational in, in leading my life, in teaching me fundamental things about humanity, yes. about love, about selfless giving. Uh, she is nonverbal, yes. but she is so full of love. She, would, she goes into the laps of buskers who are begging for food and sits in their lap. Oh. You know, one of them I remember in one town was playing flutes. I think it was on holiday in Greece or something. And she sat in the lap of that person. That person gave her a tiny little flute oh. to take away and start playing. So she connects with people on a human level. And she's taught me that. She's taught me to do that. Yes. Um, which is far over and beyond any uh, material gain or, or anything else that, you know, somebody can achieve yes. or, or get from this from this world Absolutely. so so to put these children in segregated out of sight out of mind the world your community if you have these in your community you are actually have losing an opportunity to engage with these children and to learn from these children and to to have that interaction together yes where together the whole community becomes a better place key word learn isn't it to learn yeah. from these children yes so tell us then what where are you where you know what what's kind of been the progress with the project what stage are you at uh, it took us a long time to find land in india uh, we found the land it's on the main road uh, it's on a highway we wanted it to be on a highway because we wanted the on-site organic farm so the um, the vocational training that once these children become uh, adolescents and then become adults will then be able to get by how to work in a restaurant how to um, you know prepare wash vegetables how to cook and, and how to present and how to serve and how to clean at the end of it so the whole process of uh, uh, how to work in a restaurant and different jobs in a restaurant will be like vocational training for them Wonderful. and not just that but also growing the vegetables themselves as well yeah. in an in a organic way rather than relying on fertilizers and so on yeah. teaching them about water harvesting so the whole holistic way of living will be teaching them so eventually we're hoping that uh, the vast majority as many as possible that can actually achieve um, some of those skills are transferable into uh, restaurants around the local area where we'll be able to find them employment so they're not a burden on their family Yes. Which, which the vast majority of the children are in India at the moment because they're low expectations again. Yeah. You know? yeah. They think they have this child, they're a burden for the rest of their, their life. Yes. Uh, in fact, the moment they're born, society in India tells them that uh, you got this child because you were cursed. You got this child because of your, your past uh, life's deeds or past karma, uh, which is all rubbish, Absolutely. which uh, none of the religions teach but it's culturally become acceptable that these children are 
subhuman. Yes. That they're uh, they can't do this, so they're so they you know they're not normal. Um, the wonderful thing is that my daughter Dilraj, who's my second daughter, she's also a teacher. She came with us one year, and we went to one centre, and the staff at that centre thought we were actually there to drop off Gurleen to them. Oh gosh. And they said, what's wrong with her? And my daughter's reply was so wonderful. She said, there's nothing wrong with her. There's a lot of things wrong with us. Yeah. She's perfect in every way because that's what God's made her. Great answer. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the two things I said and said, God, if you believe in God and you, you believe there is a God or a higher being or, or a divine being, whatever name you want to put to it, um, it doesn't make mistakes. So if it doesn't make mistakes, these children are not wrong in any way, what's shape or form. Mm -hmm. I think they're, they're come on this earth to make the earth a better place, to make us humans, the rest of us, uh, a better uh, society. Absolutely. Now, the World Health Organization says that there's three to 5% of these children are gonna be born statistically anyway. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So if it's, if it's three in a hundred, you know, it's gonna be, Three in a hundred million, uh, three million in a hundred million, and if you can think about the population of India, is is well over, you know, coming across one and a half billion plus now. You know, there's millions and millions of children out there in India who uh, are not given the opportunity, and the society themselves are not giving themselves an opportunity to engage with these children. So, with Rainbow Schools, we thought, okay, we've we've visited over twenty centres. There's nothing like what, we, what, what our vision would be for a school here. Let's show them how an inclusive school, similar to what would be in London or in the UK or in the West, similar to what it would be. So that maybe by having an example there, a real life example, we can impact the teaching and learning in the local, we'll start with the local area first and then have outreach and expand to the rest of Northern India. So that's where the idea came from. Yes. So we have a, an almost a, a three acre site in Punjab. Uh, we've done the boundary wall and because of COVID, uh, things are on a standstill at the moment, uh, but we've got the plans together. We hoping to start construction in three to six months time uh, for the first phase. There's three phases. We're gonna be starting a primary school first, two form entry, <laughs> so that we'll start off the the reception classes first, two reception classes, 25 per class, so there's a cohort of 50 children in the first year. And the next year that will move on to year one, we'll take on another 50 for reception and so on. And hopefully um, the first phase of the building will last us for at least three years. Okay. So by the end of the second year, we hope to raise enough funds for phase two yes. and so on. Yes. So by the end of about five years or so, uh, it's a full school with uh, approximately three to four hundred children. Very, it's very exciting. I mean, I feel very excited hearing about this for a number of reasons. But actually, you know, the aspirations for for these children and young people to have, uh, you know, to be ambitious, to feel their potential, 
all gearing them up towards living, being able to live an independent as possible life, yes. which is, you know, we have to give credit to the UK for, for, you know, having those hopes and aspirations. And there's absolutely no reason why that can't be happening in all parts of the, the world. But it's just so exciting to hear you speak about this project. And at the end, please do leave your details. So if our listeners would like to get in touch with you, would like to support you and get involved in this project, how they might be able to do that. Thank you so much for sharing that. It's just, it's incredible. Um, So let's go back a little bit to well-being then. In terms of, you know, I work with a a lot of teachers over the years and actually I'm a a qualified SENCO myself. And let's talk about sort of special needs teaching. And, um, you know, what what do you, what, what would you say because there are there are additional challenges when you're working with children with disabilities and special educational needs would you say there are some sort of core values there that teachers that work with children with special needs um and we know that there's a shortage of special needs places as opposed to you know what's actually available in school so a lot of our children you know are in mainstream settings that need specialist provision or specialist support and teachers are struggling to cope with the challenges that that presents but there are some teachers that 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 that, that manage it that manage it you know and, and I do think it comes back down to core values and you know what they actually want to they want to give as well. So can you draw any experiences there of, you know, teachers um, and what it means? Because I know, um, you know, you know, obviously I'm really drawn to the work that you're doing, A, because, you know, I just think it's amazing to be so selfless and do what you're doing. B, because my family also originate from the Punjab. So there's a, a, a real kind of, you know, you're calling me to my roots, if you like. But actually, the fact that I have a disabled son too, and sit when he was born, and I can echo all of those things that you shared about what he's taught me and the person that I am. But, you know, training to be a Senko was inspired by him. You know, I went in and I was an assistant yeah. head and I led on, on SCN and inclusion in a very, very large uh, three to going on four form entry school in, in inner city Birmingham at the time. And um, there were just so many aspects of being a Senko that I absolutely loved. I didn't like the bureaucracy too much, but that was just part of paperwork. <laughs> yeah, it was just part, yeah. part of the role. But the people, you know, I'm still in contact with with some of the teaching assistants, for example, that looked after some of the children with cerebral palsy or autism. And there is just something that sets them apart. Yeah. What, what's your view on that? Um, two words, basically. The mindset of can do. Yeah, totally agree. So if you're a teacher, so this is for all those teachers out there who are tearing their hair out, thinking they've got two or three special needs school uh, children in their classroom in a mainstream setting. I've had four with four full-time TAs within one class. Mm to manage, so there's a lot to manage, mm. not only managing uh, 30 kids, but you're also managing four of them which are uh, profoundly disabled, yeah. uh, and you're also managing four TAs that go with them, yeah. uh, and you're also managing a class which is differentiated maybe three to four ways. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, the of inner city London schools. It's, it's yeah. a typical, typical classroom. Um, if you come with an attitude, oh my 
God, how am I going to cope? This is not possible. If you come with an attitude of I can't do, mm. then you're going to fail at each step. Mm. And your stress levels are going to rise and your own performance is going to be not as well as it could be. Your expectations from those around you will not be as high as it could be. Yes. So take a breath and change and do a 180 degree turn in your mind mm. and just say, I can do this. Yeah, great advice. So the moment you start saying, I can do this, you are not only empowering yourself, you, your own empowerment will then empower your TAs in the classroom yes. and it will rub off back to the same thing. Your mindset will rub off on the mindset of those around you. Absolutely. And in your classroom, it will rub off on your children. Um, it's not easy, but it, it's a muscle that you train. So yeah. each day you wake up thinking, oh, God, I've got to do this. No, I can do this. The kids in my classroom deserve better. They're relying on me. The TAs are relying on me. Yeah. I can do this. Yeah. And if you have a can-do approach, that is fundamental. Yes. Now, the rest of things that builds upon that are you've got to be proactive in asking for help. Mm -hmm. Don't do it alone. You're not in alone. You're not in this alone. Uh, if your school has an open door policy, that's wonderful. If you leave your classroom door open when you're teaching, that's wonderful. If you leave it closed, it's fine too. But consider yourself that you are not alone in this box called a classroom. Okay, you're a part of a wider community. You've got a lot of people around you that you can lean on. Um, it depends on the leadership team, on the ethos of what they've got in their school. Yes. But I would encourage all leaders and all head teachers and senior leaders who might be listening to this is to have an open door policy, empower your teachers so that they can come to you, the senior leaders, for anything that they might need and yes. be open to that. Okay. Don't be open to the whinging and the crying. Okay, you can be, you can let them whinge and let them cry over it. But uh, as, as leaders, you need to find solutions to all of those situations. Yes. So have a can-do approach in your school. Mm. Empower yourselves and empower your teachers to be able to meet the challenges. And they are challenges. Mm. Now, each challenge, each time that there's a, um, an AHD, ADHD child who's you know, flying off the wall in your classroom while you're trying to have quiet time with, with another group somewhere, it is challenging. But if you put... The, the structures in place of what happens if that's about to happen. Yes. You know, what happens if this is about to happen? And your TAs are your right arms. Yes. You must, must have really good communications with your TAs. Empower your TAs to do the best they can. They usually are wonderful, wonderful, hardworking people. Yes, so true. And don't just leave it to them to deal with that special needs child. Yes. At the end of the day, you're the teacher. It's your responsibility for that child's teaching and learning as well. Absolutely. So I used to have a communication. If I didn't have a chance to talk to the TA, there was a, a communication book with each TA. Yes. Which the, where they would put notes of any significant learning or issues that they've had in that session mm -hmm. so that on a daily basis, I would actually write notes back if I couldn't have a one-to-one -one with them. Yes. So that half an hour in the morning, when they have that half hour before you start your class in the mornings, it is crucial. 
So set the day, plan the day in advance, plan the day in such a way that you can actually put structures in place for most eventualities. Yes. But teaching the way it is, you know, things happen uh, differently to what you expect all the time. And most of us have learnt over the years to think on our feet and to adapt very, very quickly. Uh, and, and we still have to use those skills to do that. But at the end of the day, if you're feeling overwhelmed, and if you're feeling really stressed about something, the very first thing you do is just find a quiet space, close your eyes, and breathe deeply. 30 seconds. Second step is go and get a glass of water. Yeah. Okay, hydrate yourself. Brain does not work without water. <laughs> okay, yeah. so hydrate. Third thing is write down what is it exactly that is really causing you the most stress. Make a list, okay? Think about that yourself. Discuss it with uh, a significant person in the school, whether that's a colleague, whether it's a TA, whether it's your line manager, whether it's the head teacher. Discuss it with a significant person and come up together, okay? Not just them, but come up together with strategies on how to manage that stress level. Great advice. Absolutely phenomenal advice. Thank you so much, Arvindra. I was going to, to ask you and finish with the, the last sort of um, advice that you've given here, because our aim at the Every Teacher Matters project is to leave our listeners with some well-being tips, which you've done so succinctly. Okay. Uh, so well, thank I'm happy you to so do much. that. Thank you so much. The benefit of your wisdom and experience of the number of years that you've been in teaching, I can only say that the listeners will be left with some golden nuggets there. So Thank you so much. We're in it together. We're all teachers and we have to support each other. So, you know, lean on somebody that is really uh, that you need at a time of your need and also lend a shoulder when they need it back. Yes. Uh, regarding Rainbow Schools, we have a website, which is very simply rainbowschools.co.uk. Uh, we're on uh, Facebook, which is Rainbow Schools 1 with the numeral 1 on the end. We're on Instagram. Um, it's something that uh, a lot of people have now started to connect with as more and more things are happening now. Uh, we're doing online uh, support for parents in the UK, parent-to-parent uh, -parent talks with other parents who have special needs children. Uh, that's part of Rainbow Schools project. We'll be doing that in India as well, in Punjabi. Uh, the other thing about Rainbow Schools is we're not just a standalone one school that's gonna be happening there. We're discussing the education of inclusion, uh, the business of inclusion, if you like, in the whole of Punjab with the education uh, ministry. Brilliant. So that we start with uh, one area where we impact that area in inclusion. We bring their teachers and, and train them. We go and do outreach support so that they can actually see that this inclusion can and does work and it's beneficial for the whole of society. So this one standalone school is going to branch out into the rest of northern India. Amazing. So hopefully watch this space. So it's rainbowschools.co.uk. <clears throat> it's been an absolute pleasure to speak with you today, Arvinda. Thank you so much for your, as I said already, but for the treasury of your wisdom. Thank you so very much. It's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure talking to you, Sunita. All the best. Thank you. 
I do hope you enjoyed listening to today's Every Teacher Matters conversation. It is our mission to be the voice of our amazing school staff. You can find out more by visiting everyteachermattersproject.com or contacting me directly at contact at sanitabagri.com. Thanks for listening.